0: Let's say it's sometime in the future where you have your pick of a bi-specific or a CAR-T, how do you envision delineating who would benefit from which one? As you know, uh, in Europe, logistics is key.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Lymphoma and Myeloma Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Carrier Farm Therapeutics. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the expert's academic institution or the rest of the Lymphoma and Myeloma Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Call2Ed website. Hello and welcome to this podcast series titled Multiple Myeloma, Choosing the Best Treatment Regimen Every Time. I'm Karthik Ramasamy, I'm a consulting hematologist and associate professor of hematology at Oxford University in the UK. I'm joined by my esteemed colleague across the pond, Dr. Joshua
0: Richter. Thank you so much, Karthik. I uh, always love it when someone with an accent that sounds so elevated refers to me as esteemed. Uh, I'm honored to accept it. Uh, I'm Josh Richter. Uh, assistant professor of medicine at the Tisch Cancer Institute, Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and the director of myeloma at the Blavatnik Family Chelsea Medical Center at Mount Sinai. Uh, so this is the second episode of our series. Uh, in the previous episode, Karthik and I discussed treatment decisions in newly diagnosed myeloma patients, uh, but now we're going to transition and focus on the relapsed and refractory settings. So Karthik, I'll sh- uh, throw it back to you. Thank you Josh. Right. Okay.
1: So, uh we're going to start talking about uh treatment in a relapse setting. So, I guess the first question in somebody who believes in continuous therapy and keeping patients on treatment, when do you actually consider your patient to be relapsing? What is your what's your set threshold?
0: So, uh you know, I I think there's at least a few sides to this. There's what does the textbook say? And I think you and I could probably sit here and quote the International Myeloma Working Group criteria backwards and forwards of a biochemical progression of an M-spike increase of more than 0.5 grams per deciliter and at least 25% from a baseline and an increase in the uh, difference in free light chains of 100 and all of these things. But you know, I think more granularly, it's more important to talk about biochemical versus a clinical relapse. So yes, for me, I keep people on therapy lifelong. So when their blood work starts showing a rise in the power of protein, I say, listen, this is on the horizon. We're going to need to talk about switching as opposed to the patient who shows up in the emergency room with acute renal failure or hypercalcemia or new lytic bone disease and fractures. So to me, that's the big difference. And Um, that helps guide how aggressive my treatment needs to be. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on the subject. Completely agree. I'm a big believer. I do have
1: a a provocative way of saying things, which is, you know, our folks uh, previously, our mentors didn't have many drugs, so they didn't bother treating at biochemical relapse. For me, we need to stay on top of uh, this uh, incurable illness, unfortunately. So I'm a believer to come in early. But the problem I have is... How early is early? How early is too early, right? So I'll tell you what I do, and I'm interested in hearing your views about what too early may sound like. So when I see my folks starting to put out paraprotein or increase their paraprotein, I'm often getting a bone marrow, doing genome sequencing, and then trying to uh, get uh, whole body imaging going. And if I actually see all of this to be pretty good and I'm not seeing any high risk features emerge, and my folks are working and, you know, quality of life is critically important, uh, then I tend to back off a little. Is that approach similar to what you do or you do things differently?
0: I could not agree more. I'm glad we see eye to eye on this. Um, I actually saw a patient who was treated by another physician in another institution Who went simply from MRD negative to MRD positive and they threw, you know, four new drugs at them. And I completely agree. We have, I have a number of patients, as I'm sure you do, that have a slow glacial rise in the power of protein. And, you know, we have, we don't cure the disease. We have. A limited option, albeit more of them. If I don't need to intervene with a new therapy for months or even a year or more, that's extra time for the patient. And at the time that we really need to intervene, the disease is the same biology, it will be sensitive. So I completely agree. I follow a number of patients with rising power protein, and I I love your approach, which is, you know, if they go from a power protein of zero to 0.5, and I just like you restage them and they have no CRAB, no change on imaging. We observe closely and have an ongoing discussion of risk and benefits. So uh, we see very much eye to eye on that. Thank you, Josh. But there's
1: one point though, right? I mean, in this whole process of restaging, we do pick up a high risk genetic feature that's emerging that clearly concerns uh, you or me. I mean, at this point in time, I'm well aware that there is no data to say, you know, do things early. But certainly, I'm more of the view at that time, starting to counsel my patients to start treatment early, or I'm on the lookout for the next clinical trial that I can put them on uh,
0: to to get the patient started on treatment. Would you concur with that view? A hundred percent. I think that we look back, as you talked about, our mentors and the therapies they had, not only in the clinic, but in the clinical trials they had in front of them. And there were a few good ones, and many of them were not. Now, not only do we have many approved therapies uh globally, but the clinical trial space in myeloma is it 's a revolution it 's an immunologic uh, wonderland of different options, so I completely agree and In fact, I actually saw a patient not long ago who has a little bit of a biochemical relapse but does not fit any criteria for any clinical trial, and I literally told her, I'm going to wait a few months because in a few months you were going to be fine, but you will now be eligible for a CAR-T trial and have a whole bunch of options instead of simply throwing treatment at them for treatment's sake. So uh, I, I completely agree with your approach.
1: Brilliant. We have some agreement. (laughs)
0: um so i i think that when we talk about relapse and we really kind of separate out what does that first relapse look like uh and i think we will have a lot of our go-tos but you know when we start looking at later relapses so once you've gotten beyond that upfront therapy and the first relapse when you start getting into the kind of second third relapse what are you thinking in terms of Choice of different regimens? Uh, So
1: clearly, our dominant thinking would be about what I gave up front, what is my particular patient refractory to, is a dominant part of my thinking. Uh, Clearly, all other uh, characteristics are critically important. The disease biology is important that we've already touched upon, particularly around the high risk uh, patient population. But also, what else has happened to our folks when they started? upfront therapy to now, do they have a new illness of some other type, those considerations that we need to think of is critically important. But I think simplistically looking at it, I think a key feature is refractoriness to two agents. So if our patient is uh, lenalidomide refractory, then clearly avoiding uh, an imid-based combination is what I would prefer. If patient is PI refractory, then trying to avoid a proteasome inhibitor based combination uh, is what I would prefer. All of these choices were were difficult about three four years back, but now increasingly uh, less so with all the new combinations we have, particularly with all these new targets that we've got. Uh, you know, as you rightly say, I mean, we are in an immunological wonderland right now, so we can have the the number of options avoiding these two uh, key uh, pillars of therapy uh, that we've had. So, um, I, I would like to find out if if those are your dominant features in your thinking of choice of therapy, or are there other things that predominate? You
0: know, I I completely agree. Uh, The main one that comes to the the front is, what are they refractory to? And I I think you and I see completely eye to eye. In in the back of my head, I like to imagine that I have some kind of insight into an optimal sequence for patients, even though I know in practice, I, I clearly don't because I don't think there's a clear roadmap for everyone. I think that if I have not utilized daratumumab in the frontline setting, it's part of my uh, first relapse. And if it has not been in the first relapse, it's in the second relapse. I still go back and forth between the role of elotuzumab before or after a CD38. You know, there's been this ongoing concern that because ELO uses NK cells for cell kill, NK cells are CD38 positive. Using ELO after uh, a CD38 like Isatuximab or daratumumab may be suboptimal. So maybe that should come f- before a CD38. But then again, hard to compare trial to trial, but the CD38 therapy seemed to be better. So I wrestle with this in my mind. Uh, and then the question is, I think Kyprolis, which used to be kind of my good first relapse drug, has been taken over a lot by DARA. Now I bring Kyprolis a lot into the third line, but I struggle with what to mix it with because if they've already seen DARA, what am I giving it with? Am I giving it with cyclophosphamide or do I have to start thinking out of the box and giving it with panobinostat or Selenexor? So I'm actually curious, when you get to regimens with Kyprolis or third or fourth, how are you rounding out that triplet? Yeah, I think that's a,
1: that's, that's a very difficult proposition that we have for this uh, patient population. Uh, the point you made around uh, spending the CD38 option is an important one. And um, I mean, although there's dominating data of using map in the upfront setting, one argument could be made, particularly because of the particular uh, scenario you post, do we actually reserve it for, for a later line therapy? But the difficulty is the levels of MRD negativity you get in the upfront setting and the sustained MRD negativity that is being increasingly reported in this patient population. It's hard to hold that uh, CD38 back. What I'm hoping is that in a year or two, we will have those BCMA combinations with the FCRH5 combinations. and. Uh, and so on, and GPRC-5D combinations where we don't have to particularly bother about the new MOA that we need to add to these treatment combinations. But you're right, maybe we are undercooking our patients in those settings, but it is difficult to offer a CD38 in somebody who's just progressed on a CD38. I was interested to hear about your CS1 angle with the elotuzumab. It's been less used in Europe, I have to say. There's just not been that interest with elotuzumab possibly even lack of understanding about how it may even fit in in the treatment combination do you actually find cd38 refractory patients where you use an elo combination you do feel that you you've had a potent immunotherapy
0: in that context so uh i th- i think my utilization of elo falls into two categories one is the non cd38 exposed the classic patient is they get something like rvd transplant, lend maintenance, and have a slow biochemical relapse. And then I use the data from the Eloquin-3 study and give them elotuzumab, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone. It's a wonderful regimen. It's extremely well tolerated and goes to monthly dosing rather quickly. So from a patient standpoint, it's very convenient. To your point, what happens after your CD38 exposed, I worry a little bit about it. And I kind of draw on you know, a little bit of some phase one, phase two data that was originally published by Andrew Yi at MGH, he combined elotuzumab, pomalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, ELO-PVD. And in his paper, about a quarter of the patients had prior CD38. So it's really one of the only good studies that I've seen using ELO after CD38. And he had over a 50% response rate. So, if I'm reaching for ELO later on, I kind of give it in a quad. But again, I I think I've had some mixed experiences with it. Interesting
1: to hear. Right. We would not be uh, doing justice without talking about CAR-T in a relapse refractory podcast, would we, Josh? (laughs) Of course. Well, you're the center, which brings out all the CAR-T studies. So tell me, what makes you Decide switching gears? When do you think enough is enough? I'm just going to use my CAR T option now.
0: (laughs) So, you know, I think what I reach for a CAR T is for functionally high risk patients or biologically high risk. And we've talked in this series and in the previous podcast about cytogenetic high risk. You get your genomic studies, you find a 17p or a 1q gain or something very concerning. But for me, it's those functionally high risk. Uh, And it's interesting, if you look at the MSMART guidelines from our Mayo colleagues, you know, if they look at upfront and relapsed definitions of risk, they're identical, except in the relapsed one, they include patients, if you relapse within one year of your initial therapy or within one year of transplant, that's functionally high risk. So any regimen that I give someone early on that I expect them to be in remission for three, four, five years, if they relapse in one or two, regardless of their cytogenetics, I say that they're functionally high risk. And instead of just giving them variations on a theme, another proteasome inhibitor, another monoclonal, I like to completely switch gears and get them onto a CAR-T. And again, I think uh, my experience has been mixed. Some people have had amazing responses, some suboptimal. What has been your experience with CAR-T so far? Well, our experience has been limited to a few clinical trials. Uh, We've had the
1: challenge of uh, accessing too many CAR-T trials because obviously products have to be shipped uh, to the U.S. and and, and then got back. Uh, Our experience so far has been a bit mixed. What I am concerned about is, and I wanted to kind of delve into this a bit more with you, is how selective are we getting with CAR-T? Because certainly the folks I have put in in CAR-T studies are... Uh, you know, folks who are doing really, really well, very little ad, uh, very little comorbidities, uh, gradually growing myeloma, uh, which is why I hear with interest your functionally high-risk patients, the one who's gonna just go go off very, very soon. Do you think that increasingly we, uh, we're getting more and more of the right patients into these CAR-T studies? And I'd like to hear about car too, because that's more in the space that CAR-T is gonna play. Do you think those studies are capturing the real functionally high-risk patients, and where you and I need data so that we can give it to our patients in the in the next few years?
0: Absolutely, I, I think that the CARTs are following the pathway that all of our therapies do, which is a new therapy comes out, and the initial trials give it at the end of everything, and then once the drug is approved, then as a global myeloma community, we learn the more optimal way to use these strategies. Earlier on, different um, toxicity mitigation strategies, different combinations. I think one of the things that CARTITUDE two told us or showed us is we've had this concern about early on utilization of CARTIS may be too toxic. Although the patients may do better because their disease is not as refractory, their T cell immunity is so much more intact. They may explode with CRS, and CARTITUDE two showed us quite the opposite. There was no increase in big toxicity. So I think CARTA 2 2 is actually leading us to exactly as you're talking about the future of telling us what happens when we give CAR T's earlier on. Uh, and I, I'm very happy that there are many studies out there now trying to answer these questions about, you know, what happens when we give it in first relapse, even what happens when we give it in frontline, what happens to functionally high risk. Um, I think the issue is still difficult for the functionally high risk, because right now we still need four to five weeks for manufacturing for the carts. Some of those patients don't like to wait around too long. So, very anxious for the future of potentially off the shelf CAR Ts. Um, but I-, I agree, it's been uh, a difficult space to kind of pin down who exactly is the optimal patient for CAR Uh That's
1: a very important point you make there, particularly around. Uh... Uh, Allergenic CAR T cells that increasingly is being explored in the my in in the myeloma space. Um, I have really kind of two questions, and I want to hear your views around this. Uh, one of the concerns early on we had is about the uh, fitness of the T cells that we collect in this patient population. That's been at least touted as one of the reasons why we may not be getting optimal outcomes for this patient population, and doing it in one to three prior lines means you get, you know, better T cells. There's some data from UPenn suggesting that, which is interesting. Uh, but car completely solves the problem. It's going to take T cells off a very healthy individual and then put it in. Um, I mean, I'd like to see more data, uh, but um, you believe
0: that space is going to fix more and more of our CAR-T issues? You know, I I, I think it's a big question. I think T-cell redirection therapy is this wide-open landscape, and from my standpoint, there are a few key players, and it's going to be hard to know who's going to be optimal for which one. So we have uh, autologous CAR-Ts uh, with drugs like uh the allogeneic off-the-shelf CAR-Ts, which are in clinical trial, and the bispecific and tri-specific antibodies, which are off-the-shelf. You know, we recognize that T cell redirection therapy is one of the futures of myeloma, but uh, I'm going to take the easy way out and throw it back to you. Let's say it's sometime in the future where you have your pick of a bi-specific or a CAR-T. How do you envision delineating who would benefit from which one? As you know,
1: uh, in Europe, logistics is key. <laughs> so for me, logistic, logistics-wise, I think, uh, you know, my off-the-shelf my specific will, will will always win. But I do have to say, you can see my attraction to keep my patients off therapy, right? So I am attracted by the fact that if I can get get away from just one of CAR-T and then leave my patients off therapy, then I think that is that is important. But we need data. We need data to say that the durability, particularly in the car 2 trial, I mean, if we see PFS as well over three years uh, in this patient population, then that is gonna be very, very interesting for for our patient population. But outside of that, I have to say the driver will be logistics. Uh, for this patient population and to keep it, you know, 45% of newly diagnosed folks in the UK are over 75. So <laughs> your CAR T is now going to solve all my problems. So I wouldn't need, <laughs> I wouldn't need my bi-specific antibodies. So maybe we could agree that there will be a, a profiling going on and there will be patients, you know, equally distributed between these two uh, T cell redirected therapies.
0: Absolutely. And I I think one of the things that's going to enter in some of the CAR-T trials uh, is this concept of maintenance, because I I agree with you, the treatment holidays are absolutely wonderful things. But when we first started going down the road of CAR-Ts, and I don't know if you had the same feeling, we were looking towards our leukemia and lymphoma colleagues who were curing people. And then we said, okay, well, CAR-T is the cure pathway for myeloma. And the data to date has not shown that. Now, that's not saying that it can't in the future, But if this kind of goal is going to be switched from a cure to a prolonged remission approach, is the future of CAR-T going to involve some type of maintenance therapy with an an IMID, a monoclonal or a cell mod? And I don't know if you have thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can see a few trials already being designed in that fashion. And that's, that's probably what would be putting me off the CAR-T because that doesn't solve my problem. I'd rather go the bi-specific route and keep giving them that rather than chop and change and do different types of maintenance. But uh, I mean, I, I say that flippantly, but to me, one of the big attractions of CAR-T is that uh, it's, it's, it's an exciting therapy worked in the heavily pretreated cohort. So I ro- do really hope that if we give it
0: early, that we get good treatment-free uh, periods for our patients. Absolutely. Uh, And along those lines, um, as we're kind of talking about CAR T's and the future, are there any specific therapies that in your mind, uh, be it CAR T's, cell mods, bispecifics or anything else, that you think is coming down the pike that's really gonna change outcomes for our patients?
1: What I'm most excited about, I have to say, Josh, is our ability to keep finding targets. And we have found three targets. One has been well validated, two, ongoing validation. We'll have results in a year or two uh, where we are already excited about. I think to me, that's uh, amazing. The cell mods are exciting and I've been involved in clinical trials with cell mods. There are a lot of data out there. And uh, and that's pretty good. Uh, Nine uh, four eight zero is very very good. cell mod. two twenty is also pretty good. Very well tolerated uh, drug. So it's exciting that we 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 are able to to use those drugs as well uh, in the future. So exciting times uh, for our patients. I mean, the last five years was amazing. I don't know what uh, adjective I can use to describe the next ten years.
0: <laughs> no, I I I think the next ten years are as you have said uh, several times as we've talked is really personalizing this. We have this litany of targets, you know, CD38, BCMA, GPRC5D, FCRH5. And what is going to happen, I think, to me, which is very exciting, is sitting down when we have these drugs approved and saying, okay, can we use uh, some of our physician scientists to analyze patients at a personalized level to understand who will benefit from which therapy, because yeah, I think you and I have clearly seen patients have unbelievable responses to one therapy and not to another. And we sit around, at least I sit around, not knowing why that actually happened. Uh, maybe the next generation is not just more drugs, but how best to give them. I agree. It was
1: great chatting with you, uh, Josh, uh, talking about relapsed refractory myeloma patient management. So um, thank you for that. Before we close, I invite you all to listen to the other episode of this podcast series as well to learn more about the treatment selection in newly diagnosed myeloma setting. The full series is available on lymphomaconnect.info and on your preferred podcast platform. This Lymphoma and Myeloma Connect podcast was brought to you by call ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit call for more information.